welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Esther Sultani. Welcome to this new episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Esther Sultani, Editor-in-Chief of Rappaport. Today, our guest is Beatrice Shadul sampson Beatrice, as an historian, curator, and author, she has created some of the most beautiful collection in the world and contributed to, in particular, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Today, she's going to speak to us about this amazing collection, and she's also going to tell us a little bit more about the online course that she's hosting for the V&A. Hi, Beatrice. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast today because we're going to talk about one of my favorite places in the world, which is the Victoria and Albert Museum. And the second thing is jewelry history. So thanks for being with us, Beatrice. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm a jewelry historian. I've worked, I actually already was confronted with jewelry at a young age. Call it child labor. My father was selling gemstones and I was sorting them out at about three and a half years old. There's a photograph of me doing that already on the internet. In my teenage years, I paired uh, pearl pears, sieving them and making pearl pears. You realize then how many colors pearls have. And when I was 18, I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with jewelry ever again. And look where I am today. I'm a curator, author, and lecturer in jewelry. I've worked in various museums. You already mentioned the Victoria and Albert Museum. Well, I started actually in the Museum of Decorative Arts in Cologne, where I catalogued a collection of about 900 pieces covering 5,000 years of jewelry history. And that's where my interest in jewelry history began. And I then wanted to continue with jewelry. I did find a fascination also for the very early cultures. And then I moved on to Hanau, Germany, where I was confronted with contemporary jewelry, which little did I know about it. Now I love contemporary jewelry and very much wear contemporary jewelry and enjoy talking to the makers. But let's get to the very serious matter of the Victoria and Albert Museum. I was four and a half years consultant curator to the project. And for me, it was so important that when the visitor comes in, they actually can look at portions and that we have these board systems, which is fantastic. That means you can tell a story on each board and represent the jewelry and in portions so that the visitor can look at the board and emerge themselves into the topic and then enjoy the pieces. We also have at the beginning of the gallery what we call jewelry from cradle to grave, which explains how jewelry was worn by men, women, and children. And we have today sort of the feeling jewelry is very much about adornment, big stones and everything. But that's not how jewelry started. You have birth, jewelry, then you have children's jewelry. And a great topic in jewelry is, of course, love in all different forms, reflected in the jewelry. Status has always been a very important part of jewelry. And of course, the superstitions, amulets. And a later topic that really occurs in the 16th century onwards is mourning jewelry that reflects your grief and feeling for those that you have lost. Today, we think so much about adornment, but jewelry in the gallery is chronological. So you really understand how jewelry develops through the centuries. And there's a small section of archaeological jewelry, which is Greek and Roman, fantastic pair of snake bracelets, keep away the evils, good against evil. And bracelets were worn in pairs up to the 19th century. 
ancient Egypt throughout the centuries, you always wore them in pairs and you have these magnificent gold snake bracelets. But you also have a ceremonial collar for the Shannon Grove Gorget, 800 BC. Very rare. This is something you expect in the British Museum. But the main part of the jewelry in the V&A is, of course, medieval. And the medieval period has some wonderful ring brooches, very strong on ring brooches. And they have magical inscriptions helping medical inscriptions that you wear on your chest, but of course love and devotion. Love where you had inscriptions that were secrets between the lovers and, as I say, devotional ones invoking the saints to help you through life. So that's very much a part of the medieval jewelry. But of course we tell the story of enamels and cabochon stones, which are typical of the time. And then we move on to the Renaissance period with some rather exceptional pieces like the Hennage Jewel given in 1594 by Queen Elizabeth I to Sir Thomas Hennage, who was Privy Councillor. And it's a wonderful piece of jewelry, but you'll have to come to my course to hear all about it or uh, read the books about it because she's a queen on the one side she defends the church on the back of the jewel, but the secret is inside the jewel. And there's a lovely little story between Sir Thomas Hennage and Queen Elizabeth I. And then we have a very rare jewel, less obvious, is called the prophylactic jewel. Now, why do you have a prophylactic jewel? Well, you have a portrait of Jane Seymour wearing a similar piece and is worn on the skin. And it's made of peridot and uh, hessonite garnet and a magical inscription on the back. And that's why stones were never open set. That only comes well into the 19th century. And so this open setting, you had the properties of the gemstones on your skin that helped you against epilepsy or whatever the illness may be. But it's not all about that. We also have very decorative pieces going into the Baroque era. with 208 diamonds, a beautiful piece of, made around 1620, which we find also. It's very important to always look at portraits. So you've got a portrait of the first wife of Rubens, and she's wearing such a piece, and I found other portraits. So it seems to be, could be a marriage jewel with 208 diamonds. Diamonds didn't occur until about the Renaissance period. They are, but it's a complex story. But really, by the Renaissance period, you have diamonds, and they are symbolic of virtue and constancy, so very much the story of marriage. And then we come into the 18th century with gorgeous, colorful gems. Found a lot of new gems in Brazil, and the interest in botany, so you have these wonderful floral sprays, and necklaces in colored stones. And then we've got the famous necklace by probably Nito in Paris, who worked for Napoleon, the emerald and diamond necklace and earrings that belonged to Stéphanie de Beauharnais, who was the adopted daughter of Josephine and Napoleon. We also have a spray with rubies and diamonds telling the love story between Napoleon and Josephine. That is, I talk about that in the courses, of course, because there are lots of interesting elements to that. And the 19th century is extremely strong and being a very, very strong. We have a wonderful floral spray that you wear across the chest. It's huge, absolutely huge. And it's got trembling diamonds on it. And the person who donated it was Lady Corey, a very wealthy lady who liked her jewels. You can see her on the photograph wearing this enormous spray. And we've got the Londonderry jewels and lots of really important 19th century jewels. And then the Art Nouveau, René Lalique was really the modernizer of jewelry. He was in the 1900 uh, Paris Fair. He was deemed the 
emancipator and modernizer of jewelry. Well, we know what we're emancipated from because there's a lot in the V&A, revivals of all different archaeological and Renaissance revivals and so on. So in the Art Nouveau, they wanted to move away from that. And we also show industrial-made jewelry for the wealthy middle classes. We also show grand tour, what people bought that were not aristocracy. So the 19th century is very well represented. And this is what Lalique wanted to break away from and the other Art Nouveau jewelers. We have a whole selection of Lalique jewelry showing how he experimented with horn and glass, which was absolutely revolutionary at the time to combine it with gold. But we also have how he started with diamond set jewelry, worked for Tiffany, and then he moved on to working with horn and glass. There's a wonderful comb and brooch that represents spring with sweet peas carved in glass. And then, of course, at the time of the Art Nouveau, you had also what we call the garland style, a term that was coined by Cartier. And we've got the Duchess of Manchester's tiara from 1903. She was one of the dollar princesses who came from Cuba and America and liked her cigars and was quite a society person. And she, in 1903, after her husband had died, she decided she wanted a tiara in the new garland style and went to Cartier in Paris with all her heirloom diamonds, but there weren't quite enough. So it's a very colorful character. And the arts and crafts uh, movement is well represented at the v Art Deco. And then we come to the contemporary, showing all the different new materials. Chronological, but you can't do it chronological in the contemporary jewelry. It goes more by materials and crazy ideas that they had and breaking away from traditions. Even the big jewelers like Andrew Grima and John Donald, David Thomas, how they broke away from the traditional way of looking through the gallery. It's all polished gold. And by the 1960s, 70s, you have structured gold and then you go on to plastics and all kinds of materials. I think that would be the tour of the jewelry gallery. What was the most recent acquisition you have in a gallery? I think we would have to pass that on to Helen Molesworth and Claire Phillips. I finished the consulting of the gallery in 2008. I have been following it up, but I think we need to wait to the course until it's revealed what the newest pieces are. But one of the major interesting pieces is, of course, a piece given by Beyoncé, the singer, uh, a papillon ring by Glenn Spiro. That's definitely a more recent acquisition, certainly not that was there at the time I was working on the gallery. It's wonderful. It moves and it has these savorite stones and it's beautiful colors. So exciting newer piece. <laughs> it is really beautiful and obviously has a bit of a celebrity burst to it, which is always nice. But tell me, Beatrice, how do you feel like jewelry history and teaching jewelry history has changed since you started? Because you've been working for big museums. You've seen the evolution of the V&A as well, the way to display, the way to explain. Do you feel like jewelry history is taught differently today than 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, I started, that gives away my age, 40 years ago in the Museum of Decorative Arts in Cologne. And then I worked on the Victoria and Albert Museum Gallery and on the Pearls exhibition, I was co-curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And then I've been involved with the Alison Louis Koch collection of finger rings, 2,600 rings, of which 1,700 are on display in the Swiss National Museum in Zurich, which it's a ring-shaped display with 1,700 rings. And it tells you the story of how it very much like the V&A, how jewelry evolved. Now, such collections like the V&A and the Alison Louis Koch collections 
are really study collections. And you don't have that opportunity in many museums. So it's difficult to sort of say how it evolved because it also depends on the content of the collection. But talking about the Pearls exhibition, we did similar educational parts to understand where pearls came from and how they were used and how they were traded and then the use in different cultures. I think that the interest has grown. And I think what is amazing, when I finished the book for the Cologne Museum in 1985, there were hardly any books on jewellery of the later period. The majority of books we had at the time were archaeological because of the finds jewellery was documented. So the literature on jewellery has evolved enormously. In fact, if you look into my office, it's a health and safety hazard because there's so many books for my course. I do give <laughs> a lot of... Uh, reading lists for different periods. And there's so much. So that's certainly the interest, historical interest in jewellery has evolved enormously. And so will also be the displays. But you have to have the pieces in the collection. And I was very lucky because the V&A is a study collection as well as the Alice and Louis Koch collections. And I've been curator for 35 years and now also in the Zurich Museum. So they're part of my lives, these two collections. One of the reasons I wanted to really have you on this podcast is because the Victor and Albert Museum has launched an online course on jury history that you're chairing and you're teaching. And I think that's absolutely wonderful because if you're not lucky enough to be able to go to London and see the collection, you can learn about the collection through this course. So Tell us about this course that you've started. I think you're going to start the second edition. I think one has already run last year. I've been giving courses since 2008, and the course will be running is from the 22nd of February. But I will speak afterwards about the extremely high demand that we are introducing other courses as well. But it's not only about the Victorian Albert Museum. I start and don't shock the people who are listening to the podcast. I start with 150,000 BC with eagle talons and then 70,000 BC with shells and 12,000 BC with beautifully crafted patterns on bone. So we're moving and then the transition from natural materials to gold in early Europe, about 800 BC and beyond. You have big pieces. So with contemporary jewelry, we talk about wearability. So I can start talking about wearability. And for me, important to just give a quick glimpse into this early period is why do we wear jewelry? What is the reasoning behind jewelry? Again, we think about adornment, but it's much more than that. Then I jump quickly, of course, little bit of Roman jewellery because we have wonderful mummy portraits and also there are some um, Roman jewellery in the collection. But the medieval onwards is really the main focus of the course. But I show pieces from other museums. We talk about devotional jewels, love jewels, and also show pieces from the British Museum if you do have the chance of those who are not in London and you really want to learn the full story of jewellery history, London is the best place in the world, not because I live near it. It's the British Museum has the archaeological jewellery and even 19th century, a huge collection, which we don't realise. So if you want to know about jewellery history, you've got the British Museum and the Victorian Albert Museum. But I do add a lot of other museums, Musée des Arts Décoratifs, especially the Art Nouveau jewellery. And I talk about the Green Vaults in Dresden with exceptional jewellery, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. So you get also a feel of the different museums that exist that have jewellery. And it's very important when you're looking at jewellery, it's not just about looking at the beauty of them. It's also important to realise the social history behind it. 
from in the medieval period, the church is dominant, whereas in the Renaissance, it's more the aristocracy, very wealthy merchant classes. Then you've got the Baroque splendor, and then you've got the fascinating period, which I also talk about, is the Belle Epoque and the Art uh, Nouveau period, not only about the jewels, but the demi-monde and the courtesans and actresses who were the big clients of the jewelers. And then you have the Art Deco period, talking about art movements that are reflected on the jewelry, or the Ballet Russe, how it really influenced jewelry designs and colors in jewelry, which you didn't have before. Times of crises during the Second World War, jewelry with gold rather than a lot of diamonds and so on. So in times of crises, jewelry was in demand if you could get your hands on it. And of course, in some countries, you used brass or chrome and other materials. So there's always a wish to have jewelry. And then we talk about in the course the Hollywood films. So it's not just all jewelry, it's the Hollywood films, the feel-good factor between the wars and after the wars, you've got a lot of actresses. And it's very interesting because I think you pointed out in one of your blogs about Liz Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor and her collection of jewels. It's very interesting that the earlier actresses actually wore their jewels in films and they had collections of their own, which they wore, which is fascinating. And my very favorite topic is, of course, contemporary jewelry that people say, oh, you don't wear that, but you do. Everything's wearable. And it's fascinating to see how the space age created interest in other metals. And you've got plastics. I wear a lot of plastic jewelry very beautiful jewelry. They're such important designers, individuals we talk about. And of course, I do mention the Alice and Louis Koch collection. I always bring in the rings from that collection. And there are, for example, 610 contemporary rings from the 20th and 21st century. Well, you can discuss how the shape of the ring has changed in that period. And jewels, like enameling it in very modernistic ways of using it. Um, fascinating materials that make wonderful jewels. But also the piece we have with platinum and gold wires by Giovanni Corvaia is exemplary of craftsmanship with miles, I forget now the statistics, miles of wires that are used in this one beautiful brooch. This is the main focus of the course. So you're given a feel for how jewelry develops in very small packages throughout the centuries. I hope that answers your question. It does, but now my next question is obviously, how can people join the course? And you mentioned oversubscription, so that's a bit boring for people like <laughs> who want to learn with you. So what can people do if they want to learn this course with you or maybe another course coming up? Well, we've been a surprise, very pleasantly surprised by the enormous interest in this course. We have a huge oversubscription. I don't want to go into statistics, but due to the high demand, we're going to introduce another course with the same content. And I must add to it that I have my colleagues, Helen Molesworth, who's joined the VNA a few years ago. She's doing a behind the scenes recording of pieces that are in storage and talking about techniques. We have Claire Phillips, who's joining me about arts and crafts jewelry. There's no one else who could speak better than that about it. And then I'm joined by Rachel Church, who worked for over 20 years at the VNA and is now an independent scholar and Emma for Cole because she's the inaugural curator for diaspora jewelry so we have a lot of recordings as well that those attending can listen to apart from my talks we'll be introducing a new course so you can book if you haven't got a place yet for the 22nd of February 
do book. It's on the 13th of February, you can start booking. And the course starts, I believe, on the 10th of April, so that nobody is disappointed in not being able to join me. It's a new, new system, but the content is the same. It, and you will have the private access to me, so I will be, I'll be on alert. And also in this course, I do at the very, very end, and I used to do that also in the courses in the museum when they were not online, I always used to have one hour of bring your own pieces of jewelry and talk about it, your favorite jewel. And we do that online. Uh, it's, of course, a small group in the end, but we had over 30 last time. And it's very nice because you can talk to each other and your experiences of the course, talk about your favorite jewel. And it's amazing the stories that come up. So we'll have that also on the demand course. You can chat with me. And this is a big secret now, of course, that I'm revealing. We're planning a 12-week course next year, which will allow us to be have more time for certain subjects and include maybe some techniques and so on. But I do talk about stones, gemstones, during the course, because how it changes from cabochon when then suddenly faceting cuts come in and more intricate stones and also the different mines that are found and how that influences jewelry. I do touch on that, but with a 12-week course, we can go in more depth in techniques and gemstones and maybe have a few uh, interviews, maybe a few podcasts add to it. <laughs> so that is really the thinking behind uh, the 12-week course, which will be next year. We're working on the content. And you heard it first. Just want to say to people. <laughs> Beatrice, it's such a pleasure having you on this podcast today. You've given us such a beautiful tour of the VNA, but also the course that you're going to host in collaboration with other jewelry historians. So funny enough, this podcast comes out the same day, the 13th of February, when you can register for the course that starts on the 22nd. And obviously the on-demand course, I think, will appeal to a lot of people who can join the main program. So thank you so much for that, Beatrice. And thanks for everything you've brought to all of us jewelry lovers through your writing, through your lecturing. I think you've made all of us very jealous of your background with all these books. Personally, this is it. <laughs> It's a pleasure. And I need to add that at the end of every course I do, I always put a slide in and it says, jewelry is more than adornment. It should be fun and make you happy. That is my philosophy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Jewelry Connoisseur podcast by Rappaport Jewelry Pro. This episode was hosted by Sonia Esther-Sultani and produced and edited by Vanina Pikolk. You can find all our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and read more about diamonds, colored gemstones, high jewelry designers, estate jewelry, and the latest jewelry trends on rapaport.com slash jewelry connoisseur. Please subscribe to get all our new episodes. And if you liked this one, leave us a review.